We are going to be in the book of Acts. And so you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts together. Uh, We've been walking through the story of the early church, how the church began, and some of the major historical things that happened along the way. And uh, we're making it quite far in the book now. We're in chapter 11 now. And we're going to look at a beautiful story of a man named Barnabas. Uh, But before we jump into that, I just want to open the question. Um, Who here gets discouraged in life? (laughs) And I don't really even have to wait for you to answer that question because simply by the fact that you are all human, we all get discouraged in many capacities. And I'm sure even this morning for many of you who are trying to get out of your driveway, that was an incredibly discouraging experience. Now, think of a moment in your life when someone came with a word of encouragement. Did that just not change your entire perspective and outlook? There's a, there's a power to encouragement, isn't there? That there's a power when we step into people's lives who are going through hardship, who are going through difficulty, who are going through trials, and we simply come with a word of encouragement. Uh, I know for my life, I had parents who were extremely encouraging, and they helped me through some of the most difficult moments of my life. Now, obviously, I needed a lot of correction, (laughs) especially in my youth, as many of you did, I'm sure, as well. Uh, I needed a lot of guidance. Uh, But if we only experience correction and guidance and even criticism at times, uh, we can easily lose motivation and we can become disheartened. And so there's this gift of encouragement that is really placed on the life of the church. And so when we talk about encouragement, what are we talking about? We're we're talking about coming to a person um, that's simply beyond just like a compliment. We're coming and giving a word of hope. We're we're coming and giving a word of insight. Um, we're, We're coming to give an offer bringing someone's heart and mind towards a perspective of what Jesus Christ has done for them and how he is with them. And so what we're going to look at this morning is this beautiful story of encouragement in the story of Acts. And we're going to be looking at a time where the church is actually in a very vulnerable place. And without encouragement, there would have been drastic implications. And and so what I want to do for the purpose of this morning is to basically look at a case study of encouragement. And so turn to your Bibles again to Acts 11, 19 to 30, and we're going to read this passage together. It's about the church in Antioch. And so Acts 11, verses 19 to 30. And I will talk slowly. Okay, so verse 19. Oh, sorry, Renee. I messed up the slides already. That's why. (laughs) Okay, it's popping up now. Okay, everyone see that? Perfect. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So what happened with Stephen? Who remembers? He was stoned to death. Why? Because he was preaching the Christ. He was preaching that Jesus, the Messiah, in the middle of Jerusalem. Now, obviously, did all the city rulers of Jerusalem, who were all Jewish, were they fans of that? No. And so they pushed back against Stephen and ultimately killed him for proclaiming that Jesus is God and that Jesus is king. And so all this persecution came after Stephen's stoning. 
And where did all the church scatter? They scattered as far as um, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. In other words, the church still at the time was extremely Jewish. It was still a Jewish movement in many senses. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Now, what were Hellenists? Greeks, sort of non-Jews, right? Also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so what we see is a bunch of people come to faith in the city of Antioch, a bunch of non-Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now, why was it important for the Jerusalem church to hear about this? Well, this is really the center of the church at the time. This is the main focal point of where the primary church was birthed out of. And so a lot of the great leaders like the Apostle Peter are all functioning out of Jerusalem. And so they want to know what's going on. And so what did they do? Well, they sent a man named who? Barnabas. That's a key name. We're going to talk about him quite a bit. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them to all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, who remembers the story of Saul? Saul was a man who was basically a persecutor of the church. He's the one tracking people down, literally trying to kill people who came to faith in Jesus Christ. And a lot of the church was very skeptical when Saul first became a Christian. And so Barnabas goes to this man, realizing that God had done a great work in him, and he seeks out Saul to help him in the mission. And when he had found them, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called what? Christians. So we're at the point of history in the very first time in the church where this movement are called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood and foretold the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Luke's just given a historical reference there. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so by sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so we see the church in Antioch being generous to the church in Jerusalem at this time. And so here's, here's the story. At this point, we are looking at this crazy, crazy, massive turning point in the history of the church. Um, we, we might not get the significance of this, but historically, there's a massive turning point in the history of the church because we have the good news of Jesus and the identity of the church began to take an entirely new form. Up to this point, the church had been absolutely um, pretty much mono-ethnic. And which ethnic group would have been associated with? Judaism, right? 
Christianity was a movement that birthed out of Judaism because of the resurrection of Jesus, which meant that the majority of all these early churches were Jewish. Yet here in history, we have this massive turning point where now tons of Gentiles, tons of non-Jewish people are becoming followers of Jesus. And now we even have a church in Antioch established by non-Jewish people. Now, again, this doesn't sound too controversial for us to today. However, there was a lot of questions that this Jewish church needed to have answers, and there's things they had to process and concerns that needed to be addressed. And so uh, I want to look at this case study of encouragement to see how important encouragement was at this history of the church at this point in time. And I want to do it by looking at two churches, one person, and one name. And so the two churches I want to look at are the two, two churches of Jerusalem and Antioch. And so Jerusalem, uh, again, this is the main church. This is the, the focal point. Um, it's started by crucial leaders like the Apostle Paul after the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. It's birthed in the center of where Jesus was crucified and where he rose again. This movement grows right out of Jerusalem. So it's sort of this mother church. It's this mother establishment of all the churches that would be birthed from them. So what is happening here is Jerusalem is this mono-ethnic church comprised of all these Jewish people and Jewish leaders. And now what's happening in Antioch is the, the centrality of the Jewish nature of the church is being decentralized. Why? Because the gospel is spreading to the Gentiles' nations. It begins to take life and form beyond the Jewish world, and they start preaching the gospel not just to Jews, but to Gentiles, this massive transition point, which leads us then to the church in Antioch. Now, the city of Antioch, it's the third largest city in the, the Roman Empire, uh, you, you look at Rome as sort of the major city, Alexandria is the second, and Antioch is the third. So it's a major, major hub um, for people. Now, anyone know what's the modern country that Antioch would be in today? Tur Turkey area, Syria, it was, it was Syria in that, it was the capital of Syria at this point of history, just to give you a framework for where it is in this world. Um, but it's this crazy city that's extremely multicultural. It's a large city. It has tons of ethnicities. Um, it's really this cultural hub for many of these nations gathering into one place. And so you have Jews and Greeks and Romans and Asians and Africans. And we're going to read on later in the life of the church that all the leadership of Antioch was extremely multicultural. And, and this is the place where you would have the global spread of the church actually be birthed from. Antioch becomes the main hub where missions would be advanced in the history of the church. Now, what I find absolutely beautiful about the story of Antioch, too, is that who do we read reported um, planting the church? Who planted the church in Antioch? Pardon? Just ordinary people, ordinary guys. It's mind-blowing to me that when we think of Antioch, we're thinking of the central hub of the church that literally becomes the, the mission point 
for the church planting in the Roman Empire. It really becomes the central hub for missions and the advancement of churches that becomes one of the most powerful movement of the Gentile mission. And when we read about it, we're not reading of these massive names like the apostles going around and preaching. It's just these ordinary guys that plant the church in Antioch, one of the most profound uh, movements and influential churches in the ancient world. I just find that absolutely beautiful. And so when the church in Jerusalem heard about everything that's going in Antioch, they acted right away. And, And what do they do? What's their response to after they hear what happened in Antioch? They send someone. Again, Jerusalem is still the the center point of the church, and so they send someone to figure out what's going on. There's something going on. We need to figure it out. And they acted right away, and they sent someone. Now, we don't think that's significant when we read this passage. But we have to place our minds in the historical context because we, we have to understand the delicacy of this situation right now. The, the church is actually extremely vulnerable at this point of history. Um, this is this massive transition of the church, of a predominantly Jewish movement, now has to deal with massive changes to their cultural understanding of what it means to be followers of Jesus, what it means to be the church. If you read the story that comes before this one, you, you're going to read about Uh, Peter and Cornelius and one of the first Gentile conversions and there's all this controversy surrounding the church in Jerusalem of what it means for a non-Jewish person to come to faith in Jesus. There's all these questions that they're wrestling with and there's this massive shift and change that's taking place. Now, from our perspective, who here likes change? (laughs) Especially in churches, right? Change is a very difficult thing. Change is something that threatens us, especially when we look at customs and traditions and culture. When those things are threatened, our our sort of red or white flags or red lights go on, so to say. Uh, You've probably experienced this maybe in marriage when you you look at family traditions around Christmas time and Easter and you try and make a plan as a new married couple about what are our traditions going to be and you're always going to get pushback from the other families, right? Why? Because families have their traditions. Families have their idea of what they want to do. There's customs and set. Well, the church is dealing with the exact same thing right now. If you're a Jewish church and you have all these customs and traditions and understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, and now there's a completely separate movement that's completely monocultural and non-Jewish, you're going to go and investigate what's going on, right? So think of the delicacy of this situation. And so the person you send to make this relational connection from the church in Jerusalem to Antioch has to be a very wise person in how to handle this situation. Because think of, we see this story ended in a positive way. This story very could have, much could have been a very tragic story. And we realize that even in the few chapters before this, there was opportunities to be very tragic stories of the church interacting. And the tragic situation would have been to send this man who was arrogant, who was legalistic, who was set in their ways, who was critical. And if they went to investigate what was happening in Antioch, it would have been a disaster. It wouldn't have been. I mean, you think of this new church 
All non-Jews, no Christian background, trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. They're basically experimenting, discovering what it means to be the church. There's going to be a lot of issues, isn't there? There's going to be a lot of things to complain about. There's going to be a lot of things to be critical of. There's going to be a lot of things that the Jerusalem church could have came to them and said, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, right? Everyone ever met someone like that? (laughs) Overly critical person? If that came into the situation, it could have absolutely destroyed the mission of the church. And so that's why I talk about this concept of encouragement being such a crucial aspect of the church because Barnabas comes in and Barnabas is a man of encouragement. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit, but this crucial time of the church, Barnabas comes in and again, if he would have been a narrow-minded man, he could have turned the rest of the church off to this new explanation of gospel communication and mission, and he could have split the church very easily at a very crucial time. But instead, Barnabas comes in, and he comes with a word of encouragement. Amen? Now, again, we, we look at our own lives, and from our own perspective, there's, there's times in the life of the church where, where things have to be analyzed where things have to be discussed and things have to be corrected. Um, But what is going to bind us together as a church ultimately? I believe it's going to be the gift of encouragement. Why? Because as a church family, there's always going to be something to complain about, right? There's always going to be something wrong going on. You could say that in your own lives too. Uh, Who here has ever had a day where there was nothing to complain about? (laughs) It doesn't exist, right? Right? It does not exist. And, and at the same token, there's, there's never been a church where there was nothing to complain about, so to say. But what brings the church together, what drives the mission forward is this gift of encouragement. And we especially see that in this man, of Barnabas. And so let's look a little bit more at his life. And so let's look at this one person, this man named Barnabas. Uh, We first read of Barnabas actually in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 36 to 37. It tells us this. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name, any guesses? Barnabas. And so what we read about Barnabas is that wasn't an actual name. That wasn't his birth name, so to say. His birth name was Joseph. Why did they name him Barnabas? Well, Luke tells us. It means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. So we we read about a man who was so well known for this characteristic of encouragement that we literally see the apostles change his name. Isn't that crazy? Uh, who here has had a nickname before? <laughs> I'm not going to share you with some of my nicknames in the past. They're not really that appropriate. But nicknames are, are something that sort of define you, right? That characterize you. And obviously your nicknames are going to change, hopefully, from when you were not a Christian to when you're a Christian. Hopefully you're known by different characteristics, by different mannerisms, by different things. 
But nicknames are often a way that we use to characterize people. Sadly, in our culture, they're often done in more of a joking, teasing way, which doesn't do much encouragement for anyone. But when we think about these nicknames, nicknames can be very powerful when they're done in a beautiful way. And this is a beautiful way that Barnabas was actually encouraged by his nickname, this son of encouragement. And so we, we realize that uh, he, like Paul, was a Jew of the diaspora, which means he lived, out, lived outside the Holy Land. Uh, he was a Levite. Uh, Levites were main, uh, responsible for maintaining the temple, the holy places of God. Uh, Barnabas probably came to faith in Jerusalem after Acts 2 and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so he even knew, is pretty new to the faith as well. And we, we also learn actually from Acts 4 there that he was actually an incredibly generous man. It tells us that he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we're, we're talking about a man who encourages with more than just words. He encourages people by financially giving to them and supporting them and being absolutely generous to them. And so this man becomes known for this son of encouragement, literally his name. Now, the Greek word here is actually quite fascinating. Because when we, when we realize the rich nature of this language of son of encouragement, it's, it's actually this language of parakalesis. Barnabas is the son of parakalesis. Now, I know some of you know a little bit of Greek here, but what is that word closest to? Which member of the Trinity? Any guesses? The Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting that this name of encouragement is almost directly correlated to the Holy Spirit? Now, we have enough troubles defining the Holy Spirit, but one of these aspects is encourager. And so the the deeper meaning behind this name of Barnabas is, is really this language that means to come near someone, first of all, this powerful presence, and to identify with them closely and to really motivate and build confidence in them. And and so when we're talking about someone who's an encourager, we're talking about someone who's willing to enter into your life to be present with you, to help motivate you and push you forward and to create endurance in a person. That's quite a beautiful thing. Who here has had a, a major encourager in their life that has come beside you in difficult times, walked with you, and motivated you to get through a season? Those people are crucial in our lives, are they not? They're very crucial. We all need encouragers, and we all need to be encouragers. And so this is this concept that Barnabas brings to the church as this gift of encouragement. And so praise God then that this is the man that was sent to Antioch. Because again, to a church that was very vulnerable to criticism and critique, God sends this man of encouragement. And this is the response that he gives when he comes to this church. When he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. Isn't that a beautiful description? This joy, I love this. Perhaps he probably had these doubts on the church in Antioch. He probably knew that he was going to step on, step into chaos and brokenness and all these things that are wrong in the church. But instead, he steps in and he sees the grace of God. 
And I want to say that as encouragement to you as well. When you go through your life, and again, there's so many things that we can look at to be critical of and complain about, but is there always is the grace of God working in your life. Amen? There always is the grace of God working on your life. The, the question is whether you're recognizing it or not, whether you're acknowledging it or not, whether you're worshiping God in light of it, whether you're actually experiencing joy, because if we're caught up in complaint and criticism, are you going to be a very joyous person? No. Not only that, you're not going to recognize everything that God is doing. You're not going to see the many graces that God has bestowed upon your life. And so this mental shift of recognizing where is the grace of God operating in my life and how can I celebrate that and how can I acknowledge it. That's exactly what we see in the life of Barnabas. And it tells us he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, his name is literally the Holy Spirit and of faith. And so Luke tells us that Barnabas, he remained in Antioch leading the church. A great many were brought to the Lord. This is probably about a 13-year period uh, when we're looking at historically. I know it's a short passage, but we're talking about a longer period of time. And he goes to get Saul and basically brings Saul into the church of Antioch to begin discipling more of the leaders. Now, again, this is another story of encouragement. Because this point of history, we, we have Saul, and even we have indications of how he described himself in some of the New Testament letters. How does Paul describe himself before the church and even before God? He was the persecutor of the church. He says, I don't deserve to be an apostle. I'm the worst of sinners. He, he says all these things about himself that basically says, I can't have this responsibility. I am not good enough to be in this position, but by the grace of God. And so Barnabas comes in, and what do you think Barnabas would do for Saul? He comes in and he encourages him. And he says, Saul, there's this massive opportunity in Antioch that I think you would be great to serve with me, that you would be really equipped and I can train you and help you to disciple people and preach the gospel and to advance this church in Antioch. And so he gathers Saul and builds this confidence in him to basically be working in Antioch. Now, who here has ever had a time where you're absolutely taken out of your comfort zone <laughs> and you needed someone to come into your life and just say, you can do this, right? Right? So many times like that. This is Barnabas with Saul just coming to him and saying, you can do this. You can be part of this. I'm going to help you through this. And so what's crazy to me is as we see the relationship between Barnabas and Saul, there's this shifting point in the story of the church in Acts where Luke begins to talk about Barnabas first and then Saul next, sort of Saul was being mentored by Barnabas. But later on we see a shift and whose name do we primarily see for the rest of Acts? Paul, right? Saul. This, this forefront where now the main character and the mission of the church is Saul. We see this absolutely shift where Barnabas is almost left in the background where, where Saul now takes the forefront of the story. And, and I, I envision 
Now, I don't know if this is historically accurate or not, but I envision Barnabas rejoicing in that. Whereas Barnabas, if, if he was a leader that needed power and control, if he needed to be the person all the time, um, I don't believe Saul would have gotten to the point that he was. He needed an encourager like Barnabas. That was the kind of Christian that Barnabas was. The one who elevates people and motivates people and pushes them forward. That's what we see Barnabas doing as he mentors and encourages Saul in this role. And, and so we, we see this beautiful characteristic of, of who this person Barnabas was. Uh, he's a mentor. He's an encourager. He, he helps grow the church with discipleship and gospel proclamation, these massive, beautiful things coming out of this man's life. Now, I want you to process this with me. And, and those of you who are in community groups, you guys are going to be doing this to more extensive nature too. But I want us just to think of our own lives for a second and, and put ourselves in this historical context, this mental exercise. Just imagine that you are a person in Jerusalem and you're being sent to Antioch and you're stepping into a church that has chaos, confusion, a lot of issues. What kind of person are you going to be entering into that situation? <laughs> uh, are you going to be a person that comes in and says, these are all the things you need to correct, these are all the things you need to fix, this is all you need to do? Or are you going to come in and still train and help and equip, are you going to come in with a word of encouragement? I think that's a good mental exercise for us to have because even here as a church, uh, even as Antwistle Community Church, uh, are you known as an encourager? Or are you someone who comes in where there's always something to complain about, always something wrong, always something that needs to be fixed? Or do you come in with a spirit of encouragement? Or even at your home, even in your home with your family, do you only see what's wrong? Do you only see what needs to be corrected? Or do you simply offer words of encouragement there as well? This, this to me is this convicting passage for us because it reminds us of the power of encouragement and what the implications can be. Because at the end of the day, we are people who deeply need encouragement and we need words that motivate and inspire us and push us forward. And so let me bring up this concept then. For the church especially, what we see encouragement doing in the life of Barnabas is bringing this unity to the church. Barnabas is literally what brings the relationship between Jerusalem and Antioch together in a healthy, unified way, in a way that doesn't cause division, in a way that doesn't cause um, disregard, but a way that actually brings them together to the point where we see Antioch helping the church in Jerusalem through famine. This deep relationship was built in encouragement. So the last thing I want to bring up then is this one name, a case study of encouragement. We see Jerusalem and Antioch. We see the person of Barnabas. And now we see a new name in the church, Christians. Now up to this point in history, what had the church been called? Who knows? 
They had been called the way, uh, which is a reference to when Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they were called the sort of the way of following the way of Jesus. What's another word that was often used for them? When we talk about a lot in the church, starts with a D. I thought that would be the more obvious one. Disciples, right? Disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, people who give their allegiance to Jesus, people who sit under the teaching and instruction of Jesus. And so that's how the church has been defined up to this point. Now when they get to Antioch, we see an absolute name change where now the church is becoming called Christians. Now part of the reason for that is, again, Christianity up to this point was seen still part very much of the Jewish movement. Now you're dealing with an entirely new group of people. Why? Because the Antioch church was this first place where the gospel had literally created a new humanity, where really we see out of many different nationalities, many different ethnicity groups, we see this church gathered as one. Now, before the outside world and culture saw this as primarily a, a mono-ethnic movement of Jews, but now they figured out this some form that is entirely different. They see Greeks worshiping together. They see Jews worshiping with the Greeks. They see the Africans and Asians all worshiping Jesus together, and they can't figure out how to frame and call this movement, and so what do they call them? They call them Christians. In other words, little Christ. In other words, those who give their allegiance to King Jesus. And so the beautiful thing is the, the world now recognizes this movement of faith that goes beyond cultural and racial and class boundaries, and now they need a word to describe them, and it's these mini-Christs. These people are united under the name of Christ. Now, we don't know historically whether it was a name that was first used to sort of mock the movement or simply an identification marker, but this is the point in history in Antioch where we see this new concept of Christian. Now, I want to share a thought from a historian, a historian named Latourette, and he has this beautiful description of how this name came about, partly because of the inclusiveness of Christianity. It says this, it says a fourth reason for Christianity's success. And so at this point of his book, he's listing out reasons for success of Christianity. And he says, a reason for Christianity's success is to be found in its inclusiveness. More than any of its other religions, it attracted all races and classes. Judaism never quite escaped from its racial bounds. Christianity, however, glorified in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. The philosophies never really won the allegiance of the masses. They appealed primarily to the educated. Christianity, however, drew the lowly and unlettered, yet also developed a philosophy which commanded the respect of many of the learned. Christianity, too, was for both sexes, whereas two of its main rivals were primarily for men. The church welcomed both rich and poor. 
In contrast with it, the mystery cults were usually for people of means. Initiation into them was expensive. No other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. The query must be raised of why this comprehensiveness came to be. It was not in Judaism. Why did it appear in Christianity? And I believe this is part of the reason why in Antioch of all places, the most multicultural place in the Roman Empire at this time became the central hub for the life of the church because the gospel began to break down all these barriers that had separated sexes and classes and ethnicities. And all of a sudden, the world began to realize that a new people, a new movement had come into existence. And it really shocked people to the point where they had to rename this entire movement as Christians. And so we, we see this beautiful description of the church when we see all these ethnicities and structures of society and people all come together under the name of Jesus. Now, just think of that implication again. When you're dealing with people of, of different cultures, of different backgrounds, who think different than you, then act different than you, that all these things, there's going to be room for not only miscommunication but conflict, right? There's going to be things that say, well, I like to do it this way. You want to do it that way, but I like to do it this way. That would have been rampant in the church. So what do you think got them through as the church? Encouragement. Encouragement. Why? What, what united them under the name of Christ was realizing that, you know what, we are gathered here for a very specific reason and purpose, and that is Christ. All our differences, all our different perspectives, all our different backgrounds, all our different classes, that means nothing. We're here for Christ, amen? And, and we need to function in that same way today with that same mentality of and I, I want to encourage you as a church for being part of that too, where we celebrate this. We, we try to be, in many senses, as inclusive as possible to welcome anyone and everyone to know Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus and to experience Jesus. And so I just want to close with the thought that when we contemplate our own lives, when we contemplate the culture of this church even, my, my prayer for us is that we would truly be people like Barnabas. That we would, in a sense, overlook at times so many of the things that we complain and criticize about and that we would be a people of great encouragement to one another to motivate us, to push us forward in the beauty of what God has for us. Amen? Amen? A little more conviction there? <laughs> Okay, let's pray. I'm going to call up the team as I do so. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, first of all, we come in confession that so often we are a people prone to criticism. So often we are a people prone to complaint. So often we look at circumstances and situations around us and we only see what is wrong. And so I pray that you would empower us by your Spirit to see your grace 
operating among us. And that we would learn to celebrate what you are accomplishing and what you are doing and what you are advancing in your power. And that we become a people of celebration, of encouragement to one another. Lord, we know that there are so many things in this world that can divide us. Lord, we see that run rampant in our culture right now. And yet you are the God who brings unity. You are the God who has bought us at a price to bind us together as your people. No matter what our backgrounds are, no matter what our ethnicities are, no matter what our past experiences are, all those categories begin to break down as we are drawn to you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we see differences among us, that we would learn to be a people of encouragement, knowing that this will, in a beautiful way, advance your kingdom. Lord, we look at the life of Barnabas, and he probably had no idea how influential his character would be for the advancement of your church. And Lord, I pray that we too would realize how important our character is, even though we may not recognize it in the moments here and now. But Lord, when we submit our character to what you desire from us, Lord, you can do mighty things. And so we submit ourselves to you. Send us with the words of Christ to be people of encouragement and love and mercy, acknowledging your grace at work wherever we go. We thank you, gracious God. Amen.